Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Uh, today is Friday, December 2nd, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Erica, Tiffany, and Elliot, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hello. Good morning. Hey. Hello. We are missing uh, Doug today, so we wish him well, and we will uh, we'll see him next week. Um, today, our topic is... Uh, the education slash schooling system, weapons of mass instruction, the perils of education, brainwashing, indoctrination, and robot factories. Uh, so we wanted to do this show as a follow-up to the first show that we did about the origins of the uh, the public, quote-unquote, education system. Um, of course, we had the show before uh, Thanksgiving on, uh, you know, uh, precious snowflakes and the rise of uh, coddling. Uh, in our modern society. And so I think that this show kind of dovetails nicely with that. Um, in our previous show about education, we talked a little bit, uh, you know, in depth about the, uh, the philosophical underpinnings of the modern school system and where those ideas came from. Um, uh, Darwin, Galton, uh, Fichte, and uh, the, uh, the liberal uh, philosophy that kind of resulted in the idea that uh, that there was this uh, demon imagination uh, that needed to be squelched uh, so that um, students could turn into good citizens, good workers, and the uh, the kind of two faced hypocrisy where it's it's couched in terms of uh, liberal education, uh, democratic, uh, you know, free for everyone, kind of uh, uh, like it's a it's a a good idea uh, to offer this service to the public um, and that education is very important in our country. But uh, the, the two faced part about it being that it has nefarious underpinnings uh, and that it's actually designed, not just that it turned out this way, but that it's actually designed to suppress individual thought um, and to create people who are uh, easily controlled. And so that's where we're going to go into a little bit more, today is to talk about how that system uh, manifested itself, how it rose up in the 19th century and uh, and came to be our our modern public school system, uh, at least in the United States, uh, but also, you know, in, in Canada and in Western countries, it's employed in the UK as well. Um, so let's... Uh, Let's get started with, uh, we have some audio clips that we want to play today, and we have a few. So I want to start with one. Um, before we get into this, though, I want to encourage our listeners to call in. Uh, if you're on radio.sot.net listening to the show, there's a red button that speak, says speak with the host. And uh, you do have to have a microphone on your computer. Um, but we would encourage people to call and share their stories uh, today about their experience in the public school system. Uh, if you did indeed go to public school and and what kind of experience school. you had, or private school, certainly, yeah. Um, basically, what was your experience with education, you know, and, and what can you share with us? Um, because you know we can talk to each other on this show, but we would like to get the input of our listeners as well. And if you're not comfortable calling, uh, feel free to post in the chat on the uh, on the page. Um, but this first audio clip that we have is uh, is about Horace Mann, who was the uh, secretary of the Massachusetts State Board of Education. Um, he this is in the 19th century, like around 
1840. Um, let's see, he was in the Massachusetts State Legislature, 1827 to 37, uh, and then he served as the Secretary of Education. And he is considered the father of the common school movement. Um, what's interesting is when you read this on uh, Wikipedia about Horace Mann, uh, as I said, being kind of couched in uh, in in fluffy terms and, and made to sound like he's a, a hero. This quote says, no one did more than to than he to establish in the minds of American people the conception that education should be universal, non-sectarian free, and that its aims should be social efficiency, civic virtue, and character, rather than the mere learning or advancement of sectarian ends. So that sounds very nice, right? Uh, social efficiency, civic virtue, uh, free, you know, non-sectarian, universal. These are all very popular uh, buzzwords and... Um, create a positive image of the public school system in people's minds. So Horace Mann is seen as a, uh, as kind of a hero. However, in our previous show, we covered, and if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, the, the origin of the Prussian ideology around, uh, uh compulsory, uh, schooling and <clears throat> that that came from the idea that, uh, it, specifically in Prussia, that the soldiers, uh, after the Prussians were defeated by Napoleon, um, their their generals said, you know, our soldiers are, are infected with the demon imagination and they need to be brought to heel so that they can be a more effective uh, force militarily. And so they adopted uh, the ideas of Johann Fichte and, uh, and before that um, uh, Spinoza um, in the 1600s. Uh, to create this system of compulsory schooling, uh, which was designed with uh, regular alarms like bells, uh, schedules, um, uh, uh, a, uh, a strict curriculum designed to suppress uh, individuality and bring everyone together in a kind of common uh, common core, ironically. Um, yeah. And so that... that uh, ideology that originated in Prussia was brought to the West uh, in the form of, of public schooling, and Horace Mann is the one who did it. So this clip that we have is kind of about him and uh, about what he did there, and uh, we'll, we'll check that out, and then we'll discuss afterwards. And now we come to the great man himself, a man history records as being instrumental in the creation of America's public education system. Horace Mann was an American educator who served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, part of the American Congress. Horace Mann was the key reformer of the education system at the time. In 1837, he became the head of the newly created Board of Education in Massachusetts, where he began the work that would eventually earn him the title as the father of American public education. After reading through the educational models of different countries, Mann finally hears about a particularly successful style that had been developed in Prussia, which is now modern-day Germany. The Prussian system had shown to be such a success for the government's purposes that, accompanied by a few other educators, Horace Mann travels to Germany to investigate. Upon their return to the United States, they lobbied heavily to have the Prussian model adopted. Interest in Prussia had also been growing in the northern half of the continent. Around this time, the Canadian superintendent of schools, Egerton Ryerson, traveled to Prussia in search of a new model of education. 
His journeys also included visiting Horace Mann in Massachusetts to further examine the system he would eventually adopt. George Brown, the editor of Toronto's Globe newspaper, was even quoted saying that Ryerson had successfully imported Prussian education into Ontario. During the next 30 years or so, a whole line of American dignitaries came to Germany to earn degrees. Interestingly enough, those who earned degrees in Germany came back to the United States to staff all the major universities. By 1900, all the PhDs in the United States were trained in Prussia. As the first secretary of the State Board of Education, Horace Mann promoted his new concept that the state is the father of children. He stressed that it was the responsibility of the state to ensure that education was provided for the child. A very noble idea, of course, but what exactly did he mean by that? And how did he define education? It seems like a very broad subject. It is a very broad subject. Education encompasses all of human history and all the knowledge we have gathered during that time. Not to mention, and perhaps most importantly, what we as human beings learn over our lifetime on a personal level. Horseman's 10th annual report in 1846 led to the first state law that made it mandatory for children to go to school. It was during that year that he supported the governor of Massachusetts in adopting the Prussian model of education for the entire state. How do you do that? The governor of the time, Edward Everett, as it turns out, was the very first to receive a PhD from... can you guess where? That's right, Prussia. From then on it spread very quickly. Just after Everett installed the Prussian model in the state of Massachusetts, the governor of New York set up the very same method in 12 New York schools. Horace Mann's sister, Elizabeth Peabody, of the Peabody Foundation, saw to it that right after the Civil War, the Prussian system that was then being taught in the northern states was integrated into the conquered south. By 1900, most of the compulsory schooling laws that implemented the new system had been passed. From then on, every American child grew up under the Prussian system. So that's essentially the uh, the basis for how the Prussian system made it into the United States. Of course, that was a short clip, and there's much more to be found on this. But I encourage you to to look up information around that, around Horace Mann, and around the uh, the beginnings of the the school system in the 19th century. Um. So, Jonathan, oh, yeah. I wanted to ask. Oh, <laughs> please go ahead. Were there any critical voices back then on the nineteenth on the nineteenth century when the Prussian system was installed in the United States? Were there critical voices? You know, I imagine there were, but I'm being completely honest. I don't have them in front of me, um, so I don't yeah. want to, uh, to to front like I can any, directly quote uh, any sources. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that there stats on the matter, but from what I've read, there was a huge outcry and uproar against it. Like a lot of parents were against sending their children to school. They were very suspicious at the outset. Well, I know a very strong ideology in the 19th century, especially the, at least. the early 19th century was, um, was self-determination and carving out your own corner of the world, you know, through hard work and through self-education. Uh, and in fact, during that time, America was set to become one of the most uh, innovative and uh, most inventive countries uh, in the world. Now, this is not to ignore the dark history of the Native American genocide that needs to be kept in mind. So I'm not trying to say, you know, go America. Mm -hmm. um, 
However, uh, there was a very positive movement of, of self-determination among the, the common citizens in the country. And, uh, and that was, you know, effectively, um, wiped out, uh, to the point where now I think, and we had mentioned this in a past show, you know, when you see a, uh, you know, a YouTube video or read a story about a, a child who's really brilliant, who, who comes up with some kind of brilliant idea or who is very, um, productive, it's, uh, it goes viral and it's like a, it's a, it's a unique, um, phenomena when in fact in the past, uh, that was most children were that way, were very, um, developed early on, uh, had, ideas about the world, about their place in the world and, 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 uh, methods by which they could create their own lives, you know, and their livelihood, well, independent that would, livelihood. That would explain why people at first were very against it, because basically from what I've read about the Prussian system is that it was basically a system of thought control and, uh, yeah. an important part of it was that it defined what the child has to learn, what the child has to think about, and how long they have to think about it. So um, in the Prussian system, the educational system that they developed, um, the elite of the Prussian society, they were about 0.5% and about 5.5% of the um, remaining children were sent to something called real schooling, where they were thought to think, but only partially. And then the rest of the 94% went to a Volkschulen, where they were taught to learn harmony, obedience, freedom from stressful thinking and how to follow orders. And initially they wanted to break the link between reading and the child. And they didn't want the child to learn how to read too soon. They wanted to delay it for at least six or seven years, which is basically around the time when kids start learning to read now. Right. Yeah. Just like, uh, how we had heard before, uh, John Taylor Gatto, um, who, again, if we, you know, if we have any new listeners this week who hadn't heard that previous show, highly encourage you to look up John Taylor Gatto's material and get the book, uh, weapons of mass instruction. But he talks about how the, uh, children have been, uh, robbed of the active literacies. So they are taught to read, albeit mm-hmm. a bit late, um, because you want your subjects to be able to read your instructions. The, you know, the managers of society give, give down orders and instructions and you want people to be able to read and interpret those and follow them. Um, however, you want to suppress the development of the active literacies, which is, uh, rhetoric, uh, speaking and communication, uh, and critical thinking. Um, so that, uh, when people have dissident ideas, they are not empowered to uh to clarify and communicate those ideas so they're they're held held back in that regard so they can read instructions but they can't really communicate very well and it was interesting in that clip that we just heard where they said that the prussian system was was brought into the conquered south because that was another thing again not ignoring the history of slavery in the south and partially the reasons for the civil war although that slavery was not the entire reason for the civil war um, another thing that, that Gatto talks about was that the, uh, the politicians, um, and the, uh, the public figures in the South were trained in classical rhetoric and could run circles around the Northern politicians, um, verbally and intellectually. Um, and so that was part of the reason why they had to bring that system there as well, 
um, was to crush that uh, that development of independent thought and the ability to communicate well. It was interesting too in in Gatto's work on the weapons of mass destruction. In 1909, there was an informal survey done of children working in factories. So uh, uh, in McClure's magazine, uh, they published this article, Why Children Work. And uh, they did this survey of 500 children working in factories, in over 20 factories. And they found that 412 of them would rather work in terrible conditions of the factories than return to school. So it was like the children already knew what was happening. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard, and I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but I don't think I've ever once heard anyone say that school, elementary and high school, was a empowering time. It was the best time <laughs> of my life. You know, I learned so much and uh, it really shaped my, my worldview you know, in a positive way during that time. Um, if somebody has a <laughs> testimonial like that, I would love to hear it. Well, I think each one of us, since we've all been through it, uh, ha- oh, maybe oh. has one teacher in 12, 18, 17 years. Tiffany's shaking her head no. <laughs> that that made an effect, some sort of positive effect. <laughs> I don't know. Am I reaching? Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah. I did. I have a teacher who I remember quite fondly, um, who was very good and was all about, you know, self-education uh, and kind of not necessarily following the curriculum. But uh, unfortunately, that yeah, I think you have one, maybe two, throughout that whole period. Well, they probably didn't last long. I know I, I have, have one or two, and they were fired. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I had that example. Uh, I had one teacher whose aim was, if if I can teach you to learn critically, uh, to think critically, then my aim is accomplished. And he was fired not too long after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't really I remember a- any experiences that were that great. I really liked uh, school days where we went on field trips. <laughs> yeah. And then I had fun my ninth grade year, but it wasn't because of what I was learning. It was because I was goofing off so much and I convinced one of our biology teachers to let us go camping. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went to Montreal and Quebec that year too. So that's why I had fun <laughs> that year. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's, um, you know, that it's ever really been like. Uh, I mean, I think maybe some people have that experience with university. Although we have certain things to say about university too, and we'll get into that later. But that is, I suppose, where you're generally allowed to find yourself a bit more um, than you are, you know, in, in elementary and high school. Of course, that is also a, a smokescreen uh, because the university system is designed much in the same way to make people think that they are learning independence uh, when in fact they're being indoctrinated into um, into this system of thought where uh, you know government is the the rightful parent of uh, society uh, that they know what's best um, and uh, you know despite all your uh, your reading of of Marx and other revolutionary people um, the true ideas behind uh, 
you know, what, what I consider true revolution, revolutionary thought just personally, um, are, are suppressed. Well, the, the, uh, the ideas that can be kind of, I don't know how to say this clearly, the ideas that can be pulled out of revolutionary writers that are taught in liberal education that are amenable to a modern democratic workers society where people are subservient to the master government, those are then pulled out and taught. You know, so people think, uh, young people think that they're being uh, revolutionary and that they're developing new ideas when in fact they're being trained uh, to be good citizens. And I think if they knew that, they would be very bothered by it. But Well, I think the universities can get away with uh, that kind of mindset because for one, you're pay- paying for it. And if yeah. you pay for something, you apply it. Uh, a little bit more value than if you get something for free. So the fact that you're paying for your education might make you think you're getting something more out of it, and really it's just the same old thing. I think the same can be said for parents that feel like if they send their children to a private school and pay for it, that they'll get a different or better education. And uh, Gatto talks a lot about, you know, in his 30 years of schooling, of working in both public and private schools, and my own experience, it's basically the same thing. The parents <laughs> just are under the illusion that they are getting something different. Right. Yeah, I mean, the private schools, unless you're in a one of the, the elite private boarding schools where they're training, you know, the managers, so to speak. When I say managers, I'm referring to the upper class who are, who are kind of uh, grandfathered into positions of power. Um, which is a very real phenomenon. It's not a tinfoil hat thing. Um, you know, there, there's, there are some elite private boarding schools where children are taught rhetoric. Uh, they're taught the trivium. They're taught how to think properly. And they're taught alongside that, that they have the, uh, the God-given right as members of the elect uh, to rule the unwashed masses. And so they're, they're taught how to do that effectively. And they're given the tools of critical thinking and kind of devilishly uh, funneled into a position of, of taking advantage of people with those tools. No, it's not across the board. I'm not trying to paint everybody with the same brush, but it is a, a widespread phenomenon. If you look at the majority of people who are in positions of power, Congress, Senate, judges, you know, presidents, um, they came out of that uh, system. They were taught how to rule us. Yeah, and just getting back to this Prussian system, one thing yeah. that I found funny, but not funny, haha, was how they taught the children how to read. Uh, they would memorize whole words and whole sentences versus learning how to uh, read phonetically by sound. So that's basically what the big complaint is with, well, one of the big complaints with Common Core is that they memorize whole words and ver- versus using phonetics. Yeah, and that was just in, you know, since No Child Left Behind, Mm -hmm. because in 2007 or whatnot, they were still using phonics education, and it was really good for children because songs and books and language, and then they scrapped that, and they went to the whole word. So Mm -hmm. as you were saying, I mean, I remember working with kids and lists and lists and lists of words that just needed to be memorized, Mm -hmm. so there was no more connection between the language that they were speaking amongst each other hearing in everyday life and those lists of words. Yeah. 
Well, I remember yeah, learning how to read. My mother did most of it from what I can remember, and I learned by phonics. I yes. didn't learn whole words. Yeah. That's an extremely important distinction, too. I mean, that's a huge tipping point for children in their process of learning and how they can interpret the information that's presented in front of them. Um, if you are able to look at a page full of words that you don't really understand the meanings to, you can at least begin with pronunciation of those words, and that empowers you to look them up, to ask people about them, to learn what they mean. Uh, however, if you haven't learned by that method and you just don't know what they are at all and you can't even pronounce them, um, chances are you're going to get frustrated and, and blocked from uh, progressing further. Yeah, you just give up. Yeah. And I noticed that, I mean, I, for a long time I've been, no, I don't speak a bunch of languages. Uh, I speak English in about 50% of French, and that's that's it. That's all mm -hmm. I got, and like two German words. But uh, having grown up, uh, I learned the same way by phonics, and uh, the teacher who I said that I remember very fondly was my uh, vocabulary and English teacher. And we had an entire class around vocabulary and learning new words every single day and what they mean and how to pronounce them and how to pronounce other words. And, um, and I think that I feel like that gave me the, the ability to look at words, even in languages that I don't understand and understand how they may be pronounced. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was always confusing to me when people would say, you know, they would look at a word that was kind of strange and just break down halfway through trying to pronounce the word mm -hmm. and then say, well, whatever, you know, um, that's, I'm not trying to take any kind of position of superiority. I think it's very unfortunate, you know, because it's like you don't have that, that you were not given, uh, or taught that ability to, uh, to expand your mind. And, and then you, like you said, you become frustrated and you just stop. Um, cause it is very frustrating, especially when people's, uh, intelligence is challenged or they are made to feel, uh, somehow inferior. Uh, it's very embarrassing, you know, um, and it, uh, it's very harmful psychologically well and it's traumatizing i mean i think for most of us all in the same age range 80s schooling system uh the round robin reading mm -hmm. where you're in a class with 27 kids and you go around the room and each child reads and we've all experienced the pain of that child that is struggling to read those words and it's uncomfortable for the child. And then, like you said, it's it's traumatizing, damaging emotionally. And for a while, they kind of scrapped that. They realized that that wasn't an effective way to teach reading. And so they said, well, we'll do the group reading. And then now with the Common Core, we're going back to that round-robin reading. Mm -hmm. And it's just causing so much pain and suffering. And then for the children that are readers already... They just click out, you know, yeah. they don't even pay attention and they read the whole book and then they just sit there and daydream, days, day, daydream <laughs> and then fidget and, sure. and get diagnosed with some disorder and drugged and on and on it goes. <laughs> I swear well, that, round robin, that, that, that <laughs> round robin reading thing, that completely... I mean, that completely damaged me when I was younger, you know. I was so embarrassed at reading, and it actually put me off um, reading. Uh, you know, I, I internalized ideas that I couldn't understand things and that I would never be good at it. And, and I essentially didn't really pick up a book until I was about 14 or 15 years old. 
And that was only because I had to for an exam. Um, but there were some of my peers who, um, who were clearly very, very, um, confident readers. And when, when you compare yourself to, to the others in your peer group, instead of, um, I, I guess, I guess it affects different people in different ways. But for some of us, it was, it was quite traumatizing to, to have to stand up in front of class and, and basically mess up on loads of words and, and just feel really, um, really stupid afterwards. Sure. Yeah, I would agree that it's very traumatizing. Um, that's exactly to the, uh, the time in your life when you should be, um, you know, while not being coddled, um, but you should also be, uh, empowered. Um, you know, so that if you make mistakes, you should be allowed to correct them without feeling embarrassed. Um, but, uh, you know, we have this, this system of, well, in the schooling system, but we, we also have this psychological system of, uh, class, um, where, you know, children are more easily made fun of because other children who, who feel like they have an object, uh, in order to ridicule can bond through that action. And I don't know if a lot of them even realize that they're being mean, you know, um, but they just know that they're bonding with somebody who, yeah, we're both going to make fun of this kid, um, because we have this common, you know, point of ridicule. And I, I don't know if I'm rambling a little bit, but I feel like it's, it's like the, the negative impact of that trauma on children, uh, is so pernicious because the, the way in which it comes about is, is not, um, it's not even conscious, you know, mm-hmm. the system that, 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 uh, perpetrates that insult and that damage psychological damage is uh, is subconscious is trained through the system it's not trained specifically so it, it would almost even be better if they said i know that i'm making fun of this person for some specific reason <laughs> but uh it's not that way you know i think a lot of the time well in in teacher education programs these things are known and i was sharing before the show that it is known that by fourth grade most children have completely shut down and turn off. And instead of yeah. addressing that, okay, so we need to change the way that we approach this because we're losing, you know, 90% of these kids by fourth grade. They're just not interested anymore. And instead they just keep soldiering on with with the same curriculums, the same belief systems, and, you know, obviously yeah. creating that trauma, creating that shutting down of the child is is what's happening and and actually they make it worse because it's not just the individual taunts that you get amongst the students that make fun of the kid who can't read so well they actually start to split kids up into like the dumb classes or just the average classes and then the advanced or gifted students Mm -hmm. which further polarizes people against each other and just it reinforces that stratification of society where there's, you know, the lowers, the lessers, and then the superiors. So it just feeds into itself. Yeah, and there has been, again, teachers who try and implement programs instead of, you know, they used to call it tracking. Mm-hmm. And so some more alternative or younger teachers who maybe didn't learn all the concrete core model of Horace Mann would put these gifted or more advanced students with the, the children that were struggling and do peer teaching, which actually shows to be very beneficial for both children because you have this 
advanced child that's learning how to take the information and share it with the child that's struggling. Mm -hmm. And then they, they develop an interpersonal relationship as well. And so it teaches compassion, really. Totally, yeah. Sharing information is an act of compassion. That, was, uh, that would be a really effective model, I would think. And it's actually a more natural way to learn mm -hmm. because that's how you learn things in real life. Somebody teaches you, you model their behavior. It's not just some one person standing in front of a class of 25 students and just... Uh, wah, 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 yeah. wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and you have to memorize all the wah, 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 wah. That's not learning. <laughs> It's totally unnatural. Yeah. yeah. What I think is ironic too is the uh, the the social justice. It is interesting that in Gado. Um, oh, sorry, Gabby. I think we might be on a delay, but go ahead, please. Oh, sorry. No, no problem. Yeah, I think we have a delay. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say that it was. It is interesting how Gatto explains that in past centuries, you know, uh, the time of childhood and adolescence would have been occupied in real work, real charity, real adventures, and there was a lot of community work, community pursuits, practicing affection, meeting and studying every level of the community, and basically all that is taken, you know, from modern schooling, you know. So we have a model of schooling that used to be more affectionate, compassionate, and now it is basically psychopathic, you know, when you just learn how to obey orders, that's it. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah, I, I think the, uh, the ironic part about this, or one of the ironic parts is the, the social justice movement and the idea of safe spaces and how that has been twisted because it's like, uh, personally, when I think about that, I think like when, when children are in a position to learn, um, they should be challenged and they should be presented with, with tough situations that make them uncomfortable that also, you know, make their parents uncomfortable, but their, their parents should be the one ones doing this, of course. Um, Uh, but on the same tack that, uh, where, where I think the safe space idea gets, uh, distorted is that the actual safe space should be a place that's, that's safe from ridicule for something over which you have no control. Mm -hmm. You know, and so if children are developmentally disabled because of the system that they've been put through and they're ridiculed because of that, Uh, they're made to feel inferior because of that. That is what they should be safe from. So if you want a safe space for your kids, take them out of school. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And now I, I realize that's easier said than done. I'm not saying that flippantly, um, you know, especially in the, uh, the modern era where, you know, uh, both parents have to work, uh, often have to work uh, quite a lot uh, in order to make a living, in order to feed their family. Um, it's much, much easier said than done to just take my kids out of school and, and homeschool them. Um, you know, but it, it, I don't know. It's, it's hard to offer that advice to people when you know how difficult it can be. Mm -hmm. uh, cause it's like saying here, the best solution is to change your entire life, uh, and, and upset the balance of, of what you have going on. Um, you know, but sometimes those, those transitions are very difficult and, uh, they can, result in, in positive outcomes. 
And you have to consider, too, that the parents are products of the public school system themselves. So yeah. very few of them will have the the means or the ability to teach their children at home or even the knowledge to know that public schools are bad places to send your children in the first place. Well, it's like right. Stockholm Syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, most parents would agree, oh, it could be better, we could do more, it could be more effective. But they, but it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And basically, it's a daycare center, essentially now, mm-hmm. in this day and age. Yeah. And not only the children are put at disadvantage, but the teachers as well. Um one of the things we talked about while we were preparing for the show is the uh, rubber rooms in the mm-hmm. New York school system. And that is uh, uh, the dark side of uh, bureaucracy in, in public schooling. Um, I guess we don't need to delve too deeply into it, but if you're very curious, uh, look up New York school system rubber rooms. They are, um, that's, you know, the colloquial term for it. There's a documentary called the rubber room, uh, which is about that. Um, <clears throat> where if teachers are disciplined, they're sent to a room, which is essentially like detention for teachers, where they have to sit um, and they continue to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that may make sense in a short-term solution, you know, although I still don't even think it does. But I guess you could make an argument for that short-term. The issue with this is that many of these teachers have been in there for a long, long time. One of the longest was in there for almost five years. So for, for five years, every day, he would go to school, to his job, go to a room, sit, and get paid, <laughs> and and then and then go home. You know, and uh, not only does that, uh, you know, I think upset the entire system uh, through for for many reasons, but it it damages the people who are supposed to be teaching our kids. You know. Um, well, technically, I don't know. It, in- it's a huge financial drain and. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Ted. Technically, in these rubber rooms, the teachers that are sent there are supposed to be doing, like, administrative work for the school board or for the school or whomever. But they're basically, like, sleeping or doing puzzles or chit-chatting or just wasting time. Yeah. It sounds a lot like school itself, <laughs> and they're yeah. being subjected to this, but they're actually getting paid. Um, there are some centers in New York State. I think they were supposed to close in 2010, but they're still going on. Yeah, and I wanted to address one of our commenters talked about taxes and school and being free. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to add to that because uh, there's a great article that was carried on SOT called The Dumbing Down of America by Design. And uh had some statistics here about how much money the uh, schools get in the United States. So I don't know if you guys outside of the United States have a same type of budget. But uh, this article was saying that second only to the Department of Defense, U.S. taxpayer dollars are funneled into the Department of Education at a cost in 2015 of $68.6 billion, with mm. a B, dollars. So, uh, and, and the article is talking about how a lot of this is being squandered on uh, privatization and, you know, fund- federally mandated programs like Common Core and standardized testing. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. having been a teacher, the teachers don't get that money. That's for sure. No. You know, it's no. it, it's it's more than once I've heard teachers say we're we're at ground zero. We've got the twenty six kids. We're making maybe thirty thousand a year. We have to spend our own money to buy pencils and paper and books or anything extra. But that's at the administrative level where all those money, you know, principals make on average 80000 a year. And they're not really working with children all day long, every day. Yeah. Well, that goes back, too, to uh, what Gatto talked about with the uh, uh, Carnegie and uh, Rockefeller and the pension system uh, that was funded by, by Carnegie, um, where they said, you know, yeah, you can get this nice pension if you're a teacher, but you have to teach our curriculum. And so it's a, it's a, it's bribery essentially. But yeah, I can attest to teachers not getting that money too. My uncle was a, a elementary school teacher for a long time, and uh, you know he didn't get paid very much at all. Well, and that's why the average rate of a new teacher is five years, yeah. maybe. <laughs> they quit after five years because they just can't take it anymore. Yeah. And I think they're, they're you know, driven down endlessly because maybe you have all these ideals about you're going to change the system and you're going to teach a different way. And what happens a lot is the older, more entrenched, indoctrinated teachers will basically wagon train the new teacher and force them out. Mm-hmm. You know, just same thing you see in the classroom, intimidation, isolation, you know, not supporting each other in trying to make a difference. So it's happening at both yeah. levels, on the student level and on the teacher yeah. level. Totally. Well, and that's why Gatto also says that he, you know, that's why he quit school. That's why he quit teaching. I mean, he taught for like 30, 30 years. years. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a very effective teacher once he realized what he needed to do. But at a certain point, he said he could, just could not reconcile himself with hurting children anymore. Yeah, I worked with a, a teacher that that um, used violence against children as a descriptor of her job, and not physical violence, but mental and emotional violence. And yeah. uh, with the uh, intercoms in the classroom at any time, you know, the administration can turn it on and basically listen in. Mm-hmm. So she had trained the students how to hear the click of the intercom and then change her teaching style as a result. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's totally 1984, like with the the little television screens mm-hmm. in the rooms. Yeah, and it doesn't help matters much now that um, the top administrative uh, top administrative positions in schools, like in New York State, they have something called the Bloomberg Leadership Academy. They might have changed the name, but basically, they are bringing in people, who, a lot of whom do have do not have any. Uh, experience in education they've never been teachers or anything like that and they train them to be uh principals and superintendents and so they they're basically training these people to treat schools as businesses not as places of education and so they the teachers really get no support from the upper level management so it's no surprise that they all end up quitting or they feel so devalued that they just check out just like the students do yeah, and I encourage anyone in the U.S. to look up their board of education and do a little research on 
what these people's professional background is, mm-hmm. as Tiffany said. You'll find most of them work for insurance companies or banks or other corporate entities mm-hmm. and have no background in any sort of child psychology or, or anything child-related. Yeah. Well, to, the, uh, to one of the ideas that we were talking about uh, for the show is, is talking about how the system breeds a... Uh, you know, a culture that's uh, subservient and dependent upon their, their masters, their managers. Um, and, you know, kind of where we are now, it's, uh, it's a big deal. You know, it's not, you know, people kind of blithely say the cliche that children are our future, um, but they are. And if you, if you delve into that idea um, and you spend some time researching the public school system and what it does to people, you realize that uh, we have been for many years and are uh, completely handicapping um, future generations um, from being uh, independent uh, people who can create an independent livelihood, who can be uh, empowered um, to do certain things. And the real sad part about this that strikes me uh, is that uh, that people are deceived into thinking that, that's the si- that, that, that we have the opposite of that as our society, that we have a progressive liberal democratic society where people, you know, it's the American dream. You can do what you want. You can make your future. That is not true. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is possible, um, but it is not the, uh, the, the end, um, that, that the, uh, that the means are, are intended to make. Um, you know, if you are actually going to carve out an independent livelihood in this, uh, society now, especially in the United States, uh, you need to break your back, and and fight real uh, injustice. I mean, I could go on and on about that, but I won't ramble. <laughs> um, so you know, generally people are are brought into uh, society out of school, and they're they're taught to get a career, uh, get a job, uh, pay their taxes, pay their student loans, which is a whole other thing, um, and basically uh, conform. Uh, and, uh, you should pick whether you want to be a left or a right, you know, Republican or a Democrat. That's fine. Pick one of those, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but, uh, I, I'm being sarcastic, you know, like the, it's, you're given the illusion of choice, um, when everybody's really in the same system. So I want to go, if you guys don't mind, um, with a couple of these clips that we have the, uh, this is a Joe Rogan interview with, uh, a man named Jordan Peterson, uh, who is a clinical psychologist and a tenured professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He also taught at uh, Harvard. Um, and uh, he he speaks a lot about uh, political correctness, uh, social justice warriors, but also about the, um, you know, the denigration of our modern school system in the form of universities and uh, and what that does to people. Um and I wonder if we could, uh, if we could hear the clip, uh, universities designed to make, uh, factory workers. I think that kind of dovetails with what we're talking about right now. Providing some, that sort of a structure and a framework, giving people the tools just in form of uh, asking them questions. What would you like to do? Please yeah. describe this. What is your, if you, and, when you do that, you sort of allow them to help themselves outline what they would yeah. like to accomplish, which most people don't do. No, well, in our education system, our education system was designed in, in Chicago in the late 1800s to produce um, factory workers. 
because it was set up when when rural people were migrating to the cities en masse because their kids, first of all, were likely to get factory jobs, and second of all, if you were working in a factory, your kids needed to be taken care of. And so the purpose of the schools was to train factory workers, which is why everyone's lined up in rows, rows and why there are bells. It's a factory model. The problem with that is that now people's careers basically have to be self-determined, but that's never that's never part of the education system. Part of the reason I developed these programs was because I realized this is the same course where I'm teaching students that if they would have been in Germany in the 1930s, they would have been Nazis. Uh, I'm trying to get them to design their lives. And it's way better to have someone articulate their own plan. You actually neurologically rewire people by having them formulate their own thoughts, which is why, you know, your school teachers used to say, put it in your own words. It's actually very good advice if they would explain what that means. It's like, if you have to conjure up the thoughts and you have to articulate them, then they change you. And so, well, and so this program has had the, 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 the effects have been absolutely overwhelming for us as researchers, because it's very, very difficult to produce an intervention that actually has a positive effect on people you know you hope it does but generally when you test it out it's like no nah, it doesn't do what you thought it did or sometimes it even has the reverse effect that sounds fascinating now, how do people have how can someone a regular person have access to yeah this? They, they, it's called self-authoring so that's s-e-l-f authoring like like writing a book self-authoring.com and the programs i gave away the future authoring program i think it might still be free um it was yeah, it is till the end of November. I, I did a video called Message to Millennials, where, because one of the things Jonathan Haidt said about, uh, he called Karl Marx the patron saint of the social justice warriors, and John Stuart Mill the patron saint of people, say, who stood for objective truth and freedom of expression. And I thought that was really smart. He said Brown University is number one for social justice warrior universities in Chicago for truth universities. But one of the things that Marx has over John Stuart Mill is that Marx is a social revolutionary and young people like to think about ways to change the world, right? And that's actually a positive part of their development. It's a stage that the developmental psychologist Jean Piaget called the messianic stage, and he associated that with late adolescence. It's like, while well, young people want to change the world. The problem is, is that that's been harnessed into attempts to change other people. But that isn't what you should do. If you want to change the world, you should change yourself. And I don't mean that in some cliched sense. I, I mean it in the sense that Alexander Solzhenitsyn said when he analyzed the Soviet Union. He said, don't be thinking that the line that divides good from evil runs down a political spectrum or, or, or countries or something like that. It runs down right down the middle of your soul. And if you want to sort out the world, then what you do is you sort yourself out. It's a serious business, right? They say it's more difficult to rule yourself than to rule a city. And that's the truth, because you're complicated, and there are horrible monsters inside of you that need to be tamed and to, and to, be, brought, and to be brought into alignment and submission so that you can be a powerful and useful person. And that's what schools beat out of children. <laughs> yep. I mean, not only is there the... the emotional violence that you talked about, Erica. I mean, there's physical violence in schools, too. I mean, there's one school, I think it was in California, they had a padded room that they sent kids in when they misbehave. It was basically solitary confinement. So they not only don't have any control over their own thoughts and what they learn, they don't have any control over their own bodies. 
Like they have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. They have to stand in line and walk in a straight line to go from one classroom to another or to the cafeteria or something like that. Uh, There's corporal punishment in schools. And, I mean, do we even want to get into police in schools and all the violence that entails? Do we want to go there? (laughs) The school to prison (laughs) pipeline? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's just part of this whole equation. Um, you know, any students who show a, uh, uh, an inkling of, uh, dissent, um, towards the system are, are marginalized and punished. Um, those, I think more often than not are the people who, who would have the potential to change our society, but they are funneled into, uh, into a, a cycle uh, whereby they, uh, you know, they they end up uh, doing small offenses first, larger offenses later, uh, and then are are sent to to prison. Um, and it's, uh, you know, of course everybody makes their own choices, uh, but I believe that there is actually something to be said for the programming of children into that uh, that mindset, where you can say that to a very certain extent. Uh, it's not entirely their fault. Yeah, so there was an article carried on SOT um, just this year about the disturbing history of police in schools and then more than a few rogue cops. And it just talks about all these different scenarios with these, uh, what they call SROs. School resource officers. Yeah, school resource officers. So a lot of people think that police just started to come into schools after the infamous Columbine shooting. But according to this article, um, this has been happening since the 1960s. And it actually started in California during the Civil Rights Movement. So they had uh, police uh, programs in schools to target middle schools in places mm-hmm. like Los Angeles in 1968. Uh, there was an article in the L.A. Times in 1969 about how parents were assured the programs were purely educational, quote-unquote, and that their intention was not to affect a, pol- a policing plan. Um, in no way, Arden Daniel says, a uh, Glendale principal, school principal in, in 1970, does the SRO participate as a disciplinarian. That's the responsibility of the principals and the administrators. But basically, the purpose of these early programs was to create this kind of rapport between students and police officers and to create a greater respect for law and order. (laughs) Yeah. I I know a man who's uh, 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 a a relative of uh, someone that I know. Um, I I don't want to say who it is, uh, but he... uh, he went to public school in, in California during the 60s during that time, and he's told me stories about, um, you know, essentially race battles on the school grounds and extremely violent, uh, you know, beating with sticks and bricks, you know, um, where you actually, there was a there was a decent chance that you could actually be killed. Uh, you are at the very least going to be pretty severely injured. Um, and that, uh, you know, what that makes me think of is... Uh, uh, compl- complementary treatment, I think it's called, 
or I forget the exact term, complimentary something, where essentially if you treat someone like a thug, they will most likely become a thug. Mm-hmm. You know, if you treat someone like dirt, they will start to think that they're dirt. It's the Pavlov's dog reaction manifested in human beings. Well, basically, the police were used in, in what you're talking about, Jonathan, in, in, in California as arms for de- desegregation. Mm. Yeah. Well, now they have uh, drug-sniffing dogs in schools, locker searches, car searches, undercover cops in schools. Schools are more segregated than they were like during before the civil rights movement. So... It's just a reflection of society on a, a microcosm in the school room because most of these programs actually take place in poorer neighborhoods of color, not necessarily in the richer neighborhoods, of course. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and there's so many similarities. Uh, we carried an article on SOC called Public School or Prison, and it's hard to tell. And it, this was written by... Uh, a woman who just was sharing the similarities, and I'll just give a few as some food for thought. But basically she says both school and prison take away freedom. Both school and prison use security as a means of control. So like Tiffany was saying, the drug sifting dogs, mm-hmm. the undercover cops. Both schools and prisons serve undesirable food. <laughs> <laughs> they even have some of the same menus too, yeah. right? Both schools and prisons serve, uh, yeah, undesirable food. Uh, they enforced a strict dress code, which is actually unconstitutional in public school, but we won't go into that. Uh, both students and prisoners are tracked. Uh, both have armed guards, as we're seeing more and more, you know, to prevent violence, quote unquote. Uh, and they both allow anger and foment it, create it, as we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier in the show. Both are forced to work. Both follow strict schedules. So with the bells and the lunches and the, you know, lose recess time if you misbehave, stay after if you're bad, yada, yada. And uh, both have zero tolerance policies. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the violence, tasing you because you have your cell phone on in class. Or cops body slamming students, punching them in the face. Like getting back to what Jordan Peterson said, if the way to change the world is to master yourself, how can you master yourself with all of that going on? You have no control of yourself. Other people control you. And that's basically what the school system is all about. How to make people more easily controlled. And function out of fear. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, at a certain point it gets hard to talk about. It's really kind of uh overwhelming. Yeah. And the fact that we've all been through it, but I venture to guess that when we all went through it it wasn't as bad. I mean, we didn't have cops in our schools when I was going to school from elementary school to high school. But then I uh, started working in schools for a brief time. I could only handle it for one school year. And after that, I was like, I got to get out of here. Basically, I was a a school-based therapist for uh, the school system where I lived. And I would go into the school, the classrooms, uh, 
basically into the the dumb classes or the classes where they herded all the kids who have behavioral problems and offer them counseling because you know and medication. It, yeah, it was their fault because they were acting up in school and they just couldn't handle it. But it, yeah, it's it's really terrible. And I left that year feeling that we as a species are doomed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the education system took hold. Of course, psychopaths were doing their thing and, and taking control of uh, of cultures and societies long before the modern public schooling system. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. But, uh, you know, the what is the modern public schooling system has proved to be an extremely effective weapon for their agenda, for that agenda. Um, no, I'm not trying to imply that, you know, I'll psychopaths and sociopaths get together in a room and plan out their nefarious plans for the world. Um, but if you study psychopathy, you'll see that uh, they all act in a very similar way. And so certain uh, certain policies and certain modes of, of acting without empathy uh, are uh, perpetrated because that that's a very similar trait between, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths who work their way up the power chain and, and take power and then uh, institute policies where those ideas trickle down. Um, one of the most nefarious, I think, personally, being that we talked about in our last show about education, this idea of the elect and the damned mm-hmm. um, and the justified sinners uh, so that, you know, nothing can damn the elect and, and nothing can, uh, can save the damned. Um, and there are according to this philosophy, certain people in society who are chosen by God uh, to, or by nature, uh, if you're not religious, uh, but they're essentially the same idea, um, to rule the rest of the people who have no right to determine their own lives. Um, and so when you have that kind of a system that's trickled down, uh, it becomes institutionalized and is now... Uh, it really bothers me, but it's now really seen as uh, a, a boon uh, for society that we have a free public education system. It's just one of the biggest lies ever um, that, uh, that that system has been institutionalized. Um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of uh, I'm having a hard time making my point, but uh, uh, basically it's, it's like you said, you, you came away with the feeling that we were damned. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's uh, largely true, very unfortunately. Um, I think that if we were able to, if we were given the tools to get out of our damned situation, um, that it may be possible. But we need a different system of education for the children that are coming up in our society right now. Uh, is for for as long as they keep getting funneled through this current system, um, it is not going to happen. And no amount of money or computer resources or anything that you throw at it is going to make the system better because the system is doing what the system was designed to do. Yeah. And we do see more parents choosing homeschooling and alternatives. You know, for many years it was just a like I think 70 to 80% of homeschoolers were fundamentalist Christians. Mm. 
And so, you know, their idea was, well, we don't want, you know, these, the curriculum was against their belief system. Now I think parents are seeing the damage being done and the possibility, the very high possibility that their child will be given some sort of diagnosis and put on medication, that out of desperation and care, they go for whatever's available. And really, homeschooling, it really doesn't take more than two hours a day to teach a child basic reading and writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine where, I guess as a mental exercise, just take a moment to imagine where we might be had this system not been instituted and had we actually had um, the means for you know, self-determination and self-education up until now. Um, it'd be completely different. Uh, you know, just, just alone considering the idea of uh, artificially extended childhood and the fact that now our, uh, you know, what is essentially the power base of our society, which is people who are coming out of their teens and into their 20s, very capable, very strong, fresh ideas, you know, intelligent, um, are completely... Uh, infantilized and 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 that entire um realm of possibility for changing our society is is uh handicapped it's really sad mm-hmm. and then children go on to university thinking that okay uh, I, I survived high school now i'm really gonna you know strike out on my own and really learn something important and they get to university and it's no different <laughs> yeah Maybe that, if you guys wouldn't mind, we could, we have another clip from Jordan Peterson where he talks about how universities do more harm than good. Uh, can we touch on that one? Okay. This is what you've been warning against, and this is where I completely agree with you, and this is why I think the subject is so important, and I love the way you've outlined all the steps and the problems with Marxism and ideologies in general. That we, we are dealing with this. These are the beginning steps of it, and people who look at it now and they say it's social change, it's social justice, it's not. It's not. It's it, not. That's right. It's not. And we're, this is not going to improve things. Implementing these policies will make things worse. They've made things worse every single place they've ever been implemented. And often they've made things so much worse that you actually can't imagine it. And people don't do the reading. I've done the reading. I've done the reading. I know how bad things can get. They can get so bad that no matter how bad you think they are, you're not even in the bloody ballpark. Well, it's just so strange that these sort of courses and these sort of ideologies are thriving in universities. And it's really disconcerting to someone that has children. Mm -hmm. And you know that your children are going to go there and they're going to be exposed to these ideas. Send them to trade school. You know, I think think that... Wow. A guy used to teach at Harvard just says, send them to trade school. I think the universities... (laughs) I, I think the universities... I think you can make a reasonable case that the universities do more harm than good now. I wow. hate to say that. Well, this also this is a strange time where access to information is so incredibly easy. You can get you could educate yourself right seemingly endlessly online um, and with books and just there's so much information available. This is not the 1930s. This, it's yeah. not a time where it was difficult to get an education outside of a yeah. University. Well, the university the universities may have or the university, which is like the repository of human wisdom. And the attempt to expand that may have already moved outside the universities. 
you know, just because an institution calls itself a university doesn't mean it is. And many disciplines have turned into ideological factories. And so where's the university? I mean, the university is where anyone wants to learn about their culture and where anyone wants to expand the domain of human competence. And a lot of that's happening online now. So maybe that's the future. The only thing the universities have now, I think, that, that people can't get elsewhere is accreditation. But they're doing everything they can as fast as possible to make their accreditation valueless anyways. So, yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, it's a terrible thing to say that the universities may do more harm than good. And, and I haven't come to that conclusion lately. Well, there's and I also, hate to say it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you do. There's also a, g- a gigantic financial stake, the, uh, the amount of money that you're... Well, that, and this is especially the case in the U.S. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last 30 years is that the, the proportion of university expenditures that's gone to the administration has, has massively, massively increased. And at the same time, the student loan burden has increased. And so what's happened in a weird sense is that the administrators have conspired to steal the future earnings of their students... And then mm. you can't declare bankruptcy. So to me, it's indentured servitude. Well, you can't declare bankruptcy on student loans. Right. That's you a can't very declare, important distinction. That's right. You cannot declare bankruptcy on student loans. So you think about that. You tell me what difference there is between that and indentured servitude. There's not much because it's the only thing that I can even think of where that's corpor- the case. Corporations can go bankrupt. Right. They and do it all the time. individuals can. Individuals right. can. Businesses can fail. You you can be deemed in, incompetent or, or not capable of paying your debt. In every other case, but not with universities. Yes, yeah, right. That right. is crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy because they were just trying to combat the issue where so many kids were defaulting on their student loans. They try to make you perpetually responsible for it, or you know, the idea is that these kids have to learn responsibility. Is that the way to do it by overcharging them for some useless education? Well, I would education? also say that it's not a partic- particularly useful to to burden your citizenry with with a massive debt as soon as they graduate at a time when they're most likely to take entrepreneurial risks. Yes. You know, you're not going to take entrepreneurial risks if you're so burdened with debt you can't get yourself off the ground. Yeah, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with people that if, if you're lucky, you're going to make, what, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year straight out of college? If you're lucky. So you're dealing with the amount of money that you would have to make if you didn't pay any taxes or didn't have any expenses, you'd have to work for four or five years, longer than you would actually be in college to get that degree in the first yeah, place. It's yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. insane. So I thought one thing, really important point that Peterson made there is that the system of uh, so-called education, uh, which these students are going into, is actually stealing their future earnings. And not really giving them a, a commensurate, um, you know, uh, return for that investment. Yeah, because when you think about it, how much more does a college graduate earn than someone who didn't go to college? And then you add on to how much they're paying every month for their student loans. It really doesn't work out to be that much of a difference. Yeah. In and a some, lot of some cases. of them are. Yeah, some of these loans are pretty incredible. I mean, um, I just talked to a guy a few months ago who uh, we got on this topic talking about student loans, and he said a friend of his went to a really high-end like uh, media production university, and he owes like three quarters of a million dollars, like seven hundred fifty thousand oh dollars. You will never pay that back unless you become like 
you know, a Silicon Valley executive or something. Mm -hmm. You'll never pay it back and you'll never step out of line and forge your own course or, like they said in the clip, become an entrepreneur because you have to keep your job to meet those bills every month. So you're a slave. I mean, you start off as a slave to school. Now you're a slave to whatever job that you have. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that figure, 750,000 is a pretty extreme example, but even like the more common examples, you're looking at, you know, eighty, ninety thousand $90,000, a hundred thousand dollars. Um, that's a huge debt. Um, you know, that's more than, than, uh, than most houses cost in, in middle America anyway. Um, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And what? yeah, like you said, you know, they're, they're crippling the, uh, the, the class of citizenry that would be most uh, capable of taking entrepreneurial risks and actually and actually changing uh, society by making new inventions, by empowering new ideas and, and making them work um, because you're in debt. Yeah, it's not only financially crippling, but to even think about it, it's psychologically crippling. Like if you go into <clears throat> your student loan account and you actually see the total of how much you owe and how much you've paid and how the principal just never, never goes down. I mean, that is really rough. <laughs> and you won't be paid off till 2030. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to, to share. I, uh, I defaulted on my student loans a, a number of years back and now I'm back and I'm like, actually, like, <laughs> 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 but you can't go bankrupt on student loans. So of no. course I had to get back into the program. Um, but yeah, um, my, my, uh, my total amount owed now is twice my principal. Mm-hmm. So the amount I, I owe now the twice the amount that I borrowed to go to school. Yeah. I'm interested, Even Jonathan, do you actually ever have to show the piece of paper that you paid for? Has anyone ever asked you for your degree? No, yeah. no, I, I may be a unique example, but I don't yeah. think so. My jobs um, have. <laughs> I was largely self-taught and uh, school. I I actually went back to school. I I dropped out of college to get a job in in the field that I'm in, in in, uh, interface design. And I worked in that field for a good uh, five years before I went back to school because, specifically because I thought at the time I should get this degree so that will help my future. And it didn't. Mm. It just didn't. It's it's one of the biggest uh, regrets of my life. But you can't live in regret, so, you know, there it is. Well, uh, I'm with you on yeah. that. I, you know, I spent upward of $40,000 on a, what's called a BS in education. <laughs> and what was interesting was there was a lack of teachers in, in the early 2000s. So there was this whole, we'll, we'll help you pay off your student loans if you sign this contract for six years to work in failing schools, right? So now you're perpetuating the whole cycle again. So you're straddled with this debt. You can't pay your loans. So they're going to pay it for you, but they're going to put you in an environment where you have no support, you have no supplies, and most the people that took that option are no longer teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel you on that. <laughs> And I yeah. learned more in self-education, homeschooling, actually working with children one-on-one than I ever did in, you know, 10 years of university. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, it even changed my uh, my career path. I I was I, te- I taught at a university for two years as an associate, and um, I had the option cl- uh, clearly presented to me that I could uh, gain tenure uh, within I think it was five years. Um, so you know, tenure is pretty sweet. You're talking about lifelong uh, guaranteed job as long as you don't commit a felony. Uh, but uh, I, in order to get that. Uh, the actual full professorship, I had to get a master's because the school was becoming accredited. Um, and I looked into the degrees and the master's that I wanted to get in my field was $80,000. So, okay, I can get a lifetime job. That'll pay, you know, decent, like lower middle class income. But I have to go into debt for 80000 yeah. And so that's when I left and was like, <laughs> I'm going to do, do something else. I'm going to strike out on my own. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it's worked out okay. It was hard for a while, but you know, um, I'm with Peterson. And when he said, uh, "If you're gonna send somebody to school out of uh, out of high school," I mean, personally, I have a pretty extreme viewpoint. Like, don't send your kids to to public school at all if you can. If you can make it work, don't do it. Um, but you know, if you have to do that, and they've gone through that, you know, fifteen thousand hours of public education. Uh, do them a favor and send them to a trade school, not to a university, mm-hmm. where they can actually learn a skill that will be applicable um, in a real-world situation. And really, if change so, wanted to be enacted, that would start happening in high school, like we talked about on our previous education show. Home economics, yeah. auto shop, wood shop, hands-on learning, where each child could, you know, even agriculture, where... A child is drawn to a certain subject or trade, and they're encouraged in mm-hmm. that, and that they actually have a viable skill that will that is meaningful and provides an income as well. Yeah. But granted, like one of the points that Rogan made in that clip um, was that with the availability of information, and I think we've talked about this before. Uh, you can self-educate pretty effectively mm-hmm. um, to the point where you're actually an expert in your field. Because uh, it takes a lot of self-determination, it takes a lot of effort. Um, you know, but it is possible, and uh, people can do that for a ridiculously less amount of money than it than it takes to go through university. I mean, just for instance, in the technology field. Uh, there's a website called lynda.com where they have uh, tutorials and pretty much everything that you can think of. It's $50 a month. So for $50 a month and like a two year investment, you can, you can become an expert if you put in the effort mm-hmm. uh, and you could go to any university and then teach that course, probably better than the faculty. <laughs> but it's that accreditation like you were talking about. R- right. Yeah. You don't have the, the, the PhD or the master's. Well, that's like so, a, and that's where, what John Taylor oh, was talking about in his book, like all the most successful people that he was talking about, like Richard Branson and Thomas Edison and all these people who, like at age 13, they were commanding Navy vessels and all that. None of those people, I mean, they dropped out of school. They didn't go to university. And I forget, maybe it was Thomas Edison, like he, and his hiring of people, he would discriminate against people who had gone to university. 
Yeah. So it really has no value in the real world as far as, you know, self-determination, being creative, forging your own way, coming up with new ideas. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> unless you want that career, you know, let's say mm-hmm. you really like you're you really want to be a an engineer for GE or GM, you know, or something like that. Then then sure. Yeah. University training makes sense. They want the degree, you want the training. But that's such a specific subset, I think, for, um, for you know, looking at a broader society as a whole. Um, I, at every chance I get, encourage people not to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in the U.S., and I don't have the stats right in front of me, but I think there's like 30,000 or something engineers that graduate every year, mm-hmm. and they can't get a job. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, well, it's saturated now, yeah. Yep. Do any of our other hosts want to share about their university experience? Well, um, in the, in the UK, it's not quite as bad. Um, when you compare the UK to the rest of Europe, it's it's still up there with the most expensive education. <laughs> um, but um, like, for instance, it's it's really annoying because. In Scotland, um, university education is pretty much for free. And in Wales, it's pretty much for free as well. And they're, they're both on the same island as England. But with England, um, for three years university degree education, you need, you need to pay roughly £9,000 every year. So it works out to about 27000 for the tuition fees and then roughly... Um, I don't know, like ten grand for the for the student loan to to, to basically live off, mm. um, and so it, it's almost like they make it really difficult to um, to qualify as anything. And I, I you know, I, I echo what you guys have said about um, you know when, when you when you do get a degree, I, th- I think really the 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 safest thing to go for is something that is practical that can be used. Um, outside of a specific um well well no basically yeah basically something that's just practical you know or or if you want to be a doctor you know you can't teach yourself to be a doctor you could learn some of the things that you would need on the job of being a doctor but you can't go and apply to a hospital and assume that you're going to get a job as a doctor when you haven't got the qualification but for for so many other things i mean you, you you really don't need that qualification, as you guys have said, and many people don't even use it. Or, or they do go to college, they get a degree, and then they they don't even specialize in that field. You know, like there's so many people who do psychology degrees and end up doing absolutely nothing with that afterwards, and they're in like thirty grand's worth of debt. I mean, yeah. I know one, I know one guy who who um this he basically went to London and he trained at one of these specialist um, performing arts colleges. And he was in like 56 grand's worth of debt after three years. And he can't even find a job. <laughs> I mean, he can't even find a job. He works in like McDonald's, you know? <laughs> so what's, I mean, what, what's the point of doing that? And, and, and so you've got so many students now, so many young people who are, are crippled. I mean, they're having to go back home and um and live with their parents because they're they're struggling with the student debt and i know that it's not as bad as the us i mean in the us from what i've heard 
the student debt is absolutely phenomenal, but it's still really quite bad in the UK as well. And so, um, you know, I, I would also, I would also recommend that if anyone has the idea of training at university, if, if it's not something that's very specialized, then maybe it'd be worth rethinking that and seeing if there's any other avenues um, with which to find a job in that field where you could maybe get some sort of vocational training or something mm-hmm. um, without having to get yourself in 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 that much worth of worth of debt because you're essentially then a slave to the banks um, and you're going to be paying that for, forever and unless you're one of these high-flying jobs and that's really um, unlikely <laughs> that's yeah. all I really have to add to that yeah Yeah, I mean the figure that you cited, you know, thirty thousand. That's that's pretty low in the US. Yeah, I was just <laughs> gonna say that. Good. Yeah. Even in pounds, what is thirty thousand pounds in dollars? Like well, forty five, fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, it's it's still still fairly low. But yeah, what you said about the specialization in the, uh, you know. Um, people not actually using their degrees. Like my degree is in scientific and technical communication, which technically means I can write a really good technical manual. That's what I learned was, was technical writing. Um, and uh, and I, I've never written a manual in my life for money or otherwise. <laughs> you know? Gabby, were you going to add something? I think we lost, lost her. her. Yeah, I think so. Oh. Well, I always encourage well, uh, uh, people that wanted to go into yes, the field. But I have oh. a delay, so I don't know. Well, okay, uh, we can hear you. If you guys can hear me, yes. <clears throat> yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, we have quite a delay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's a delay of like. It's like a delay of two minutes. <laughs> well, from my point of view, uh, the education system that um, I have, I'm familiarized. Uh, it's the, the system in Costa Rica, and I have... Oh, did we lose her? Yeah, sounds like it. Shoot. Well, Gabby, if you hear this and if you are able to reconnect, just just go ahead and start telling your story. We'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, why don't we? Uh, well, since we're we're coming pretty close on our time, I would like to get to this one last clip that we have from Jordan Peterson, which is uh, which ties into the topic from the. Oh, there she is. No. Oh, really one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's do that. Let's do that clip, and then Gabby, please, uh, after this clip is done, come back and tell us your your experience. Um, but uh, it ties into the topic from the week uh, before last of the uh, the precious snowflakes and safe spaces and the um, you know the 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 modern uh, hypersensitive uh, culture that's being uh, taught right now um and peterson just kind of touches on that and how universities are not meant to be a safe space you know you're meant to be challenged you're meant to be offended and how to deal with hardship 
Um, but they are kind of taking that out now and, and making people think of it in a, in a different way, which I think is actually detrimental to the educational process. Um, but let's check that out. And then Gabby, if you can hear this, when, when we come back, please go ahead and tell your story. Nothing's too trivial to be a problem to a social justice warrior and because they don't like to deal with real problems. And Yale went after Halloween costumes. So this woman wrote a letter saying maybe we should just relax about this stuff and, you know, not don't put restrictions on what people wear for Halloween, but let people decide what is and isn't offensive. Yes, and well, and, and many Halloween costumes are offensive. That's the point. But her and, letter was in really reasonable. Yeah, it was perfectly reasonable. It was like an it was like an adult wrote it. Yes. Yeah, and and you know all hell broke loose. All hell broke. And she loose. ended up she ended up quitting. And I think he did. did no, he I don't leave? think I don't think he left. I don't think he left. But, but she did. Seeing him bow down to this woman, screaming at him, swearing yep. in his face was so disturbing. It was so humiliating. I felt so humiliated for him because she was screaming, this is our home. What the f*** are you doing? You're not making this safe. And it's not safe. a bloody home. The university is not a home. Right. It's not a safe space. It's not a secure space. None of that. And and if, if that, when a, a university isn't a home, that's not what it is. It's a place to be confronted by, I would say, often horrible ideas. You want to learn about history? You think that's going to be safe? Do you know what human history is like? It's an endless bloodbath with, you know, with, with a certain amount of hopeful progress underlying it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horror show. And great literature is like that. And, and, and biology is terrifying. And physics is terrifying. And you want to be safe. It's stay home. Stay home with your mom. Stay home with your dad. Don't come to university if you want to be safe. Because don't even you, go outside. No, I don't think if you if you're going if the university is going to make you safe, then it ceased to be a university. So one of the things I try to do in my class, I have this class called Maps of Meaning, which concentrates on atrocity, basically, on Soviet atrocity and and Nazi atrocity mostly. And what I try to do in the class is to teach my students that had they been in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, they would have been Nazis. And had they been op- offered the opportunity to be an Auschwitz, Auschwitz camp guard, then maybe they would have leapt at it. And maybe they would have been in the sadistic, uh, in the more sadistic proportion of the Auschwitz camp guard population. You think that makes you feel safe? It doesn't make you feel safe to know that Nazis were humans and you happen to be one of them. And so I think that educators that tell students that they're offering them a safe space are doing them a profound disservice. And you don't... I'm a clinical psychologist, and here's one of the things you do to make people less afraid. You don't make the world safer. What you do is you people tell you what they're afraid of, and then you break it into little bits so that they can go confront them. You know, so maybe they're afraid of going to a party, and you break that down. And you say, well, do you know how to introduce yourself? And they say, well, I don't, I don't really even know how to shake someone's hand. And so then you practice having them shake their hand and introduce themselves because maybe they weren't taught by that by their half-witted parents when they were when they were young because they were ignored and so then you say well maybe you can go to a party for half an hour and all you have to do is introduce yourself to two people and we'll call that success and you build up their competence and their confidence one step at a time and what happens the the clinical literature indicates quite clearly is you don't make people less anxious by doing that you make them braver it's not the same thing you don't make the world and its horrors smaller. You make the person and their, their, their capacity to deal with horror larger. 
You encourage them. You strengthen them. That's what you do at a university. You arm people with arguments. You, you hone their intellect. You, you help them learn to write so they can marshal their arguments. You, you help them learn how to engage in intellectual combat because that's better than engaging in real combat. And you, make them, you make them hard and strong. You don't mollycoddle them and make them safe unless you're their enemy, unless you're trying to devour their spirit. And that's what we have in the universities. We have, we have the reign of the Oedipal mother who's, who's answered everything. is oh, just come a little closer, dear, and I'll protect you from the world. It's just like Hansel and Gretel's, the, you know, the, the, the witch in the Hansel and Gretel story. Well, my house is made of gingerbread. Just come in here and everything will be fine. Well, she feeds you candy to fatten you up so she can eat you. That's the archetype of a modern university. When did this start? When did the trigger warnings, when did the safe spaces, when did all this emerge? Well, it has its roots in the student radicalism of the 1960s, especially the far-left radicalism. It really popped up in the 1990s, in the early 90s, when and I, I was teaching in the U.S. at that point. And Which uh, university? I, I taught at Harvard from 93 to 98. And there was a fair push for political correctness, especially in, in the early part of the 90s. But, but it, it got pushed back down. And disappeared and went underground. It went underground is more accurate. And then it's just come back with a vengeance in the last five years. And I think it's partly because we have all these radical left political activist departments at the universities. So I think you make some really good points there. And, um, you know, you can see how that culture has been propped up. And one of our commenters made a good point that it's, um, it's not just that it's being taught right now, that, that it's been crescendoing to this point, you know, it's been being built up and, uh, interesting too. I thought in one of the other clips where he had mentioned that, um, that the public school system was effectively started, uh, in the United States in Chicago and that Chicago is kind of the seat of the Marxist slash social justice warrior, um, movement is because the, uh, the recent, uh, the protests after the United States election started up in Chicago. I thought that was an interesting correlation. They also because, write I mean, all the curriculum under no child left behind yeah. laws. The yeah. University of Chicago. Crazy. So, well, I guess we can kind of see, you know, where we've come and, um, you know, what are some potential solutions to this? Geez, to the entire system? I don't think there really is one. Yeah. I don't know if, it, you know, it's a really pessimistic viewpoint, but uh, perhaps realist as well. I, I don't think it can be changed. You would really need like a an upheaval of the entire thing. Mm. Uh, you would need the, the money to stop flowing and people would have to be uh, empowered to you know, to take on their own education and their children's education and everything else is so, um, I know what would that. stop that. <laughs> A giant comet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A giant meteor 2016. Yeah. There's just too much at stake, too much at stake for the people at the top. They're not going to stop with their indoctrination program. Why would they? And the yeah. people who've actually been through the public schooling system, most of them don't have, I hate to say it this way, but they don't have the sense to know that it's horrible and it's all just a big game and a big trap and it just sets you up to be 
an even bigger slave to the system. So the only thing that can stop it is a complete system upheaval, and not just in education, but in lots of other realms as well. I think just shining the light on it, you know, peering into the darkness and seeing it. I mean, for all of us that research this information, it's almost like you know all these things, and maybe even in school you have that inkling feeling, you know, I don't want to go to school today. Mm-hmm. It's like your your intuition tells you that, that, you know, you are being indoctrinated and that you are doing meaningless things. And Yeah, there might be some individual lights that pop on and they kind of quietly scamper away from the system, but on a grand scale, like as far as society-wide, I think it's here to stay, and it's just going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, I think it eventually will get to the point where all schools will be, become uh, boarding schools. They'll mm-hmm. just take you away from the family completely, and your parents can sure. visit if they're lucky. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe on an individual level, um, you know, uh, if you don't have kids, uh, teach yourself, empower yourself. If you do have kids, teach yourself and your kids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and do your best, uh, to be, a, you know, to teach awareness and to gain awareness of the situation so that you can be, uh, armed against it, uh, in your own, in your own mind, in your own consciousness and self-determination. Um, uh, you know, so I think it, you know, like we, we had, uh, talked about at the uh, beginning of the show, it doesn't necessarily work on every single person. It works on the majority, which is why it works. Um, but it is possible to go through that 15,000 hours of public education and still come out with, uh, with some small glimmer of, of hope for, for critical thinking and self-determination. But you have to do a lot of the work yourself because mm-hmm. they are not going to teach you that. Well, and I've shared this before for any parents that may be listening that are dealing with this. Ask your kids every day what they're being taught, and I guarantee you it will shock you, (laughs) especially around Thanksgiving time. You know, what did you learn today? Oh, we learned about the pilgrims and the, (laughs) you know, and, and encourage dialogue and teach them to question young, you know, says who, Mm -hmm. who says that and. Why do you think that's being taught? And why is the same thing taught to your kids that was taught to you 20 mm-hmm. and 30 years ago and not deviating very much from from the standard, as they say? Yeah. And uh, perhaps there's a certain amount of kind of uh, undercover work that needs to be done as well and like kind of staying under the radar uh, while kids are in school. Because, I mean, you can imagine... You know, if you teach your kids the truth about history and they go to school and they tell their teacher that Darwin was a virulent racist and a sexual predator, <laughs> uh, it's probably not going to go over too well, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why I, so, I encourage parents to volunteer. You know, I know that people are strapped for time, but just even an hour a month sitting in the classroom participating, and usually they'll just have you make photocopies or run errands for for the teacher, but sit in there and actually experience what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's always been so mm-hmm. crazy to me how parents can entrust their children to absolute strangers. You have no idea who they are, what their background is, 
what they think about your children and you send them to this place for six to eight hours every day, five days a week, and you're perfectly fine with it. And they don't ask the hard questions at the parent-teacher conference, which I think mm-hmm. is now just down to one a year or something, you know, put, putting the teacher to task on, so what's happening? <laughs> Can you give me an outline of, of what your curriculum looks like for, for this month or this year? What expectations do you have? I mean, it's as much of an interview for the parent as it is for the teacher, mm-hmm. looking out for the child's best interest. Yeah, it's another one of the great deceptions, I think, that's being perpetrated right now is that idea of um, the importance of the family unit, the cohesion of the family unit. Because as soon as you start talking about that, people say, well, you're a you know, traditional right-wing conservative and, and women should be barefoot in front of the, the stove and, and you know men should be working and they should be emotionally unavailable um, and the children should be beaten when they're <laughs> when they make mistakes, you know, and it's like, no. I'm not saying any of that, uh, just saying that the, the, the cohesion of the family unit is crucial in the development of um, self-determined people. Um, and that's utterly destroyed by the public school system. Uh, the formative years are taken away from their parents. Mm-hmm. Or they, they, they send them off in the morning and get them back in the evening. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's hard to talk about a lot of this stuff without being pigeonholed into a, you know, black and white uh, definition of what you're what you're saying. Yeah. Well, it's not a safe space. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I hope it didn't trigger anybody there. <laughs> but yeah, well, it's a you know, it's a dark view. But as we've talked about before, um, the dark views are important to uh, to experience. Um, because the world is not a safe space. And, uh, you know, if you're going to live and operate in the world um, and keep your sanity uh, and be able to be an effective, productive human being, uh, you have to face the darkness as well as the light. Um, And facing the darkness uh, requires being able to deal with it and keep your head on straight Mm -hmm. and not uh, not have to turn away and run away. You know, so these things like where, you know, it may sound extremely depressing where we're talking about the system and then saying there's no way to change it. It's like, well, you know, why are you talking about it? Mm-hmm. But we're talking about it because it exists, because it it, uh, um, it it requires being looked at by virtue of the fact that it exists. Yeah. So anyway, uh I think we have uh, we have kind of used up our time. Uh, we were trying to stick to an hour and a half, and we're a little bit over, but that's okay. Um, let's uh, let's go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment uh, today. She has a segment about a bow killing vet, uh, Kristen Lindsay from Texas, uh, and how her only punishment was a practice ban for one year. Um, so it should be a, an interesting segment, um, and we will uh, return after this to wrap up. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to touch upon a rather disturbing issue. Perhaps you've heard about it, 
But something like a, half a, a year and a half ago, a veterinarian named Kristen Lindsay shot a supposedly feral cat with a bow and arrow in her backyard and then posted a picture on Facebook where she can be seen smiling and holding the cat with the arrow still stuck to his skull and with the comment, my first bow kill. The only good feral tomcat is one with an arrow through its head. Vet of the Year Award gladly accepted. And by the way, this cat wasn't feral and belonged to one of the neighbors, but it doesn't change anything. We know that there are women psychopaths and that they can be totally charming and practically undetectable until they do something as cruel and shocking as this. It isn't shocking only because of the deed itself, but primarily because she is a veterinarian. How clueless and callous she must be to share something like this on the social network and not see any problem with that. So I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Jones, who talks about how the Texas Veterinary Board handled, uh, handed down a pathetic one-year license ban to Kristen Lindsay, meaning that after one year she is allowed to return to practice. If you live in Texas, you better remember her name. Here's the recording. This is Dr. Andrew Jones. In this edition of Veterinary Secrets, I'm going to talk about Kristen Lindsay, the bow-killing vet, and how, in my opinion, the board's punishment definitely does not fit the crime. Hi, you guys. Welcome back to my channel. For those of you who are new, welcome. Um, today's episode, as I said earlier, is a little bit more serious. And, and it's about Kristen Lindsay. I think most of you all know who she is. She's this veterinarian from Texas who in 2015 went out and killed her neighbor's cat with a bow and arrow. And then not only that, she posted a picture of herself. So there she is standing in the picture smiling. She's holding this dead cat up uh, that's been impaled by this arrow. And then she writes in, in a captions, you know, my first bow kill, LOL. The only good feral tomcat is a dead tomcat. And then after she adds, Vet of the Year Award, gladly accepted. And here's the image here uh, that she posted on Facebook. First of all, this is super hard to believe. Um, secondly, we're dealing here with the veterinarian. So obviously this caused a huge public outcry. You may be one of the many thousands and thousands of people that responded um, sent emails to the Texas board, to animal welfare societies, uh, essentially petitioning to say, you know, this person should obviously not be practicing it a bit as a veterinarian. Secondly, she should be um, appropriately punished. She shouldn't be allowed to get, get away with this, to go ahead and kill an animal in such a callous way, and then on top of that, to go ahead and publicly brag about it. Uh, never mind the fact that she's a veterinarian. So different steps happen. An Austin grand jury was appointed. They weren't able to find enough evidence to charge her with animal cruelty. You know, she's gone ahead and killed an, an, an animal without an owner's consent, and even though her claim that she thought it was, quote-unquote, a stray, likely owned by one of her neighbors. And so she wasn't charged with felony animal cruelty. But the Texas board met, and they thought, initially, based on her actions, Let's just completely remove her license, her ability to practice veterinary medicine, 
she went in ahead she went ahead and appealed you know, that initial decision to a higher administrative level a grand jury went and found no um, yep that's not right no she shouldn't completely lose her license to practice veterinary medicine and they suggested one that she lose her ability to practice veterinary medicine for only one year um, four years after that she could start to practice again under quote unquote supervision and then after that go ahead and work completely normally as a veterinarian which I and I think you and many hundreds and thousands of other people have a huge issue with clearly that's not right the big issue that I and so many of you have with this is this Kristen and Lindsay she was a veterinarian 100% she's there to relieve animal suffering and that's sort of whole part of the veterinary oath that you're going to take when you graduate to become a veterinarian. I mean, the public, they hold veterinarians in high esteem because, generally, of what we do. I mean, we value animals. We put this huge value on animals, and they look to us um, to maintain that value in terms of pr to protect them from suffering. We as veterinarians are the ones who are supposed to stand up and say, you know, we should not be doing things that are harmful to our animals. We should not be doing unnecessary tail docking, ear cropping, debarking, things that, that don't need to happen that are causing unnecessary animal suffering. As veterinarians, we graduate with the veterinary oath. And I solemnly swear that I will use my skills to benefit society. I solemnly swear that I will protect animals relieve suffering, promote animal welfare. I will well, hold myself and my profession in the highest dignity, maintain the highest level of ethical standards. So clearly, Miss Lindsley, she 100% broke the veterinary oath. I mean, no question, she caused unnecessary animal suffering. I mean, part of her claim in court was that this, you know, this animal didn't suffer, it just felt an arrow going to the back of the head. Seriously? First of all, this is serious professional misconduct. And Kristen Lindsay should not be practicing anymore. And there's certain things that you do uh, that essentially are going to nullify your right to practice. She should not be working with animals. Yet she made a big mistake. No, she shouldn't have put it on Facebook. But beyond that, really, it speaks to the core of who she is and what value she puts on animals. She should not be practicing at a, as a veterinarian. And secondly, we've got you know, this, this whole regulation amongst veterinarians, amongst these boards that claim to, one, you know, support veterinarians, we're going to represent you in one side, and also then represent the public and protect animals on the other side, often together in the same whole body. Clearly, they're biased. You've got a group of veterinarians that are, you know, in their own world, thinking, well, you know, it was just a one-time thing, she made a horrible m mistake, if there were, weren't things like social media, you wouldn't all know about this. Yeah, she's skilled enough, she should still be able to practice. But no, she shouldn't. And the fact that there is social media, so many people were, were able to know about this and have this, like, public discussion. I mean, what do you expect of your veterinarians or your other professionals? There has to sort of be a base level of professionalism and standard of practice. And if there's certain things happen, like you, you've got to draw the line. She should not be having a veterinary license and being allowed to practice. I mean, if the Texas board wants to do the right thing, convene another meeting and as a group, you know, say like, here's our standard, regardless whether or not uh, you know, an administrative hearing, a, a court above them has made this decision, 
make the decision. Right, remove her license to practice. Write to your local government representative. Um, write to the Texas board. Let them know that you're not happy with de- this decision. Because clearly they're also influenced by you, you know, the pet parents of the world. Especially if you're in Texas. Especially if you're you know, living in this state where they reside. I mean, they're going to listen to what you have to say. Because obviously they're influenced by the public as well. Because they're trying to balance both sides. We're going to represent veterinarians. Uh, we don't want to be sued by someone at a higher court. But we also want to represent the public. So if you as the public are that unsatisfied you know, with this decision they're going to take another sober second look and look at it again. I think the last thing I I need to add in is that I think the majority of veterinarians that are out there in veterinary practice throughout North America are pretty darn good people, and hopefully you have one of them uh, as a veterinarian that are seeing your animals. But as in any profession, there are some people that probably shouldn't be practicing. She's one of them. Well, <clears throat> that was a, a sad story. Yeah, pretty disturbing. Yeah, but thank you for sharing, Zoya. Um, you know, this kind of stuff needs to be uh, put in the public light. It's like the guy said, you know, we do have social media, and uh, if you look it up, you just look up Kristen Lindsay on Google, you'll see it's one of the first links there. They show the, the photo, and uh, fair warning, it's, uh, it's pretty disturbing. Uh, she's got a big... Uh, smile on her face and it's uh you know i'd say potentially psychopathic yeah she probably got into the profession specifically so she could have access to pets to torture that's just my theory yeah (sighs) yeah i mean you know geez like he said you know she shouldn't be allowed to practice but uh i would even dare say no i'm no big fan of the criminal justice system, but there, I feel like this is a case where there could be some kind of criminal repercussions for doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there are things you can do. Uh, if you, uh, if you feel like, uh, voicing your opinion on this issue, there is a site, cause I was just looking this up, uh, alleycat.org. Um, has a uh, a petition to revoke this uh, person's veterinary license, which is one of those things where it might be worth giving your voice, you know, because it's one less psychopath medical practitioner out there in the world. And I don't say that lightly. I know that that diagnosis uh, is not to be lightly thrown around, but if, you know, read the story, see the photo, it's uh, it's fairly clear. I don't think that that can be deemed a mistake <laughs> by any means. Not only that, but the um, the caption for the photo that she posted was uh, my first bow kill, LOL. The only good feral tomcat is one with an arrow through its head. Vet of the year award, gladly accepted, LOL face. Yeah. Yeah. Duping delight. <laughs> Yeah, jeez. I mean, those those type of people shouldn't shouldn't be allowed animals, but they shouldn't even be allowed around people. You know. I can only um, imagine. She's dangerous. 
you know, what her practice must be like. She can't be a very compassionate person and a nice person to take your pet to. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. No. Yeah. Well, on that note, I know that our show today has been kind of a downer, but uh, <laughs> this is not a safe space show. Uh, <laughs> so we... uh we try to look at the issues that exist and, and talk about them in a real way and talk about how to deal with them. Um, and to our main topic of, uh, of education and the dark side of the, uh, the public education system, uh, as we mentioned, uh, you know, one, one thing that you can do is research it yourself, arm yourself with the knowledge about the system that exists so that if it does come up in conversation, you have, uh, you have data, um, so you you can go further than just saying public school sucks. Uh, you can explain why, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, and then you know participate in self education. Uh, you know, there's so much information available to us. Um, even if you've already gone through public school and uh, and and university and and been indoctrinated in some fashion, um, you know, you still have the uh, the power of of free will and self-determination. And so you are able to, to teach yourself. Now it can be a, a long road to hoe um, and it can be very hard, but uh, the results are, are totally worth it. Um, and, uh, and don't let anybody tell you uh, otherwise that you need a, a degree, you know, to be an expert in anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't have a, a, a recipe per se today, only to say that uh, this last week uh, we broiled some steaks, which was very good. And so I would say, um, I don't know if anybody's ever tried that or if you just like fry or grill steaks. Um, but if you take some steaks, uh, really can be any cut, um, salt, although it works well with like uh, chuck or like ribeyes. Uh, salt them really thoroughly, let them sit for about an hour, then rinse them off and then rub some, your spices or herbs or whatever into the steaks. Let that sit for another hour. So they come all the way up to room temperature. Um, and the salt will loosen the fibers in the meat. And then, uh, after you rinse them off and you put the spices on there, they will draw the, the spices back into the meat and then broil them, uh, on, on high, which I think is like 500 degrees for five minutes per side. Uh, and they come out really, really nice. So that's not a not a full recipe, just a recommendation. That sounds great, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. So if you uh, next time you get some steaks from the store and you have a a stove that has broil, try it out. Sounds awesome. So that's our yeah, that's our show yeah, for that today. Yeah, sounds pretty uh, good. We uh. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, for our commenters um, uh, in the uh, chat room uh, for taking part in the chat for today. Um, we'll see everybody next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>